This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have David Slukey, author and historian based in Charleston, South Carolina, where he is an assistant professor in Jewish studies at the College of Charleston. He is the author of the new book, Sing This at My Funeral, a memoir of fathers and sons published in 2019 by Wayne State University Press. David, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We, this this isn't it definitely isn't a typical academic book um so it's really a unique sort of family memoir um the traditional yeah first question on new books in jewish studies is how how did you come to write this book so i started writing the book about um in about mid to late 2016 it was about uh, 6 or 9 months after my father died and i was kind of you know, grieving as you do when a when a parent passes away. I had gone to Los Angeles to do some teaching at the um, Helix program for the organization Yiddishkeit LA, and they had asked me to come and talk about the history of the Bund to to the group that was uh, preparing to go to Eastern Europe. So um, I was on the plane over there preparing um, my notes. I'd sent some readings ahead of time, and I kind of at some point decided I was going to scrap all the notes and I was just going to talk about the kind of my family history with the Bund. Um, And as I was preparing those notes and I was talking about my dad and my grandfather's involvement in the organization, I started to sort of really think about how unusual some of these stories were, things that I, I think I'd always thought were pretty kind of normal. And I started to think, well, maybe it's not so normal to be raised in a Bundist Yiddish-speaking environment in Melbourne, Australia. So when I got to the seminar, I, I did talk about all that, and I sort of pressed all the participants to talk about what their investment was in this program and what they were doing. Um, and it just got me kind of thinking a little bit more about, you know, this old saying about all history is autobiographical. And to an extent, that had been true for me as a historian. I'd written my f- dissertation, which became my first book about the history of the Bund after World War II. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to experiment and explore that a little bit more. So I called home from Los Angeles and I said to my wife, Helen, um, I think I'm going to write this book, uh, a memoir um, about me and my dad and, and my grandfather and kind of like investigate our relationships and some of the things that struck me as really strange, but also things that I sort of felt were a little bit, um, you know, kind of 
stories that weren't really hadn't really been told in Jewish history enough. Um, so stories like my grandparents surviving in the Soviet Union, there wasn't a whole lot of scholarship on that topic about all the Polish Jews that escaped Poland once the Nazis invaded and survived in various parts of the Soviet Union. There's not a lot of scholarship on Jews in Australia or a lot of scholarship on some of the weird paths that Jews took after the Holocaust and the ways in which, you know, the kind of trauma impacted future generations. It's a grow, you know, these are all kind of growing bodies, but it's still early on. So I want to kind of bring all these different aspects together and do it in a kind of creative way that allowed me to tell a bigger story of I guess, the Jewish 20th century through the lens of different generations of my family. So, you know, I kind of made the decision to um, write it in a more literary style. Um, I didn't put footnotes in the book. Um, and, you know, in a way, it's kind of scary to, to, to throw out the rules and, you know, try and do things a bit differently. Um, but it sort of made sense to me, given the way I was weaving, you know, history and memory and my own memories with my father's and other people's memories that I was that I was working with. Um, so it was a kind of interesting process. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's like the long version of how I got got to write it. And then in the end, I wrote it. The first draft I wrote pretty quickly in about. 12 to 18 months, um, I had a full first draft and uh, I went through a few more, but, um, you know, the, the structure remained pretty, pretty close to that. So, yeah, it's definitely um, a unique um, book. So I definitely want to dig into a bit about, yeah, how exactly you went about um, um, writing and structuring structuring the book. But um, maybe we should... Um, you know, the, the book, is, like you said, um, is um, weaving together stories of um, yourself, your father and your grandfather in particular. And um, we, you kind of, one of the, the, the first stories that you start off your book with, which is, you know, very much sort of situating yourself and your own story and approach to history and everything uh, is... Um, basically, you're telling about uh, being raised in the Jewish Labour Bund um, uh, in Melbourne, and um, in particular, you talk a bit about um, the annual Warsaw Ghetto Uprising commemoration and your own involvement in um, organising that very important uh, annual event in in uh, Melbourne. But maybe. Um, we can go into that, but also just for perhaps listeners who don't know anything about what the Jewish Labour Bund is um, and its history, maybe you could, um, yeah, just give us a brief overview of that and then, yeah, go into sort of your own your own upbringing in Melbourne, yeah. Sure thing. I mean, the, the brief thumbnail sketch of the Bund is it was a um, Yiddish-oriented Marxist um secular Jewish political movement that emerged. Um, it, it was formally founded in 1897, really after like a decade or two of uh, socialist agitation in different cities throughout the Russian Pale. Um, and it was founded in Vilna and it operated in the Pale of Settlement uh, until 
there was no Pale of Settlement when the Russian Revolution came along. Uh, it was basically uh, swallowed up um, eventually by the Bolsheviks and uh, the centre shifted to Warsaw. And so the centre of the Bund after World War One was interwar Warsaw um, and Poland more broadly. Uh, and that was probably in some ways the the Russian period. So between 1897 and about 1917 was its uh, probably its most radical revolutionary period. The interwar period, the Bund became basically a legal organisation um, that went about establishing uh, a whole raft of different countercultural organisations: a children's movement, Skiff, a youth movement, Sukunft, um, a women's auxiliary body, a sports organisation. So, you know, they're kind of um, creating this cradle-to-grave movement uh, for the Jews of Poland who, you know, are socialist or socialist-oriented, among many other organisations at that time, modernising Jewish life. Um, The Bund was, I wouldn't say destroyed by... World War II, but certainly the majority of its members were murdered and its institutional structures were um, cut down. So after World War II, uh, Bundes, and this is what my first book was about, Bundes tried to re-establish their movement in different cities and countries around the world. There were something like 31 Bund branches or groups in 13 countries after World War II, but it really never reached the same kind of level of influence or popularity as it had before the war, like it reached a lot of people in interwar Poland, which was one of the sort of most dynamic Jewish civilizations. And, you know, other Bund satellite groups, even before World War II, existed in the United States and Latin America and um, in Australia. So, um you know, it had a marked influence on modern modernizing Jewish life, um, along with other modern political mass movements. Um, and you know, one of the things I do in the book is part partly I tell this story, um, but I also recognize that I was raised in the last remaining outpost of the Bund in Melbourne, Australia, um, and. You know, to an extent, I kind of um, I was brainwashed, <laughs> and you know, part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to um, come to terms with that. You know, sort of telling that history and being conscious of the fact that you know I look at it through a particular lens and being upfront about that lens that this was the story I was brought up with, um, and I want to believe the best of it and it's you know not always a glory the glorious history i grew up with within the movement um so i was raised uh in the children's movement in melbourne skiff uh, which is an acronym for socialistische kinderverband or socialist children's union which was founded in poland in 1926 and had thousands of children as members at that time uh, the Melbourne branch was established in 1950 by people who had themselves been raised in the Polish skiff, and they founded it in someone's house in the sort of inner Melbourne suburb of Carlton. Um, and my, you know, my grandfather found the movement in, we're not quite sure when, but sometime around World War One, he joined the movement. He raised his, and I guess I'll talk about his sons in a little bit, but he raised his first two sons 
sent them to Skiff in the town he lived in, Vatswavik. He then sent my dad and my aunt to Skiff in Melbourne. They sent me and my brother. My parents sent me and my brother. Um, so, you know, it's kind of been in the family for over 100 years now. And we're still kind of, um, <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to make sense of what that means, I guess, what that legacy means, what it means to inherit this kind of history of a movement that really never attained any political power but did exert certain kinds of political influence within the Jewish world. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the the sort of the broader story as well is situating your own life um, against the backdrop of the Holocaust. Um, and um, one of the, yeah, the stories that you tell early on in the book is about um, your own sort of relationship to organising the annual Warsaw Ghetto Uprising commemoration and um, sort of your differences, I suppose, um, with um, some of the, the older Bundists in terms of how that how that should be um, commemorated. So that was an interesting, yeah, that was an interesting episode for me. I was 15 or 16 when I first um, sort of joined in taking response. I, was, I became a health or a lead, I, I guess the American version is a counsellor. I became a counsellor at SCIF when I was... 15 or 16 and part of the responsibility I took on um, with another helper was to run the Bund's uh, Holocaust commemoration on a- every year it's on April 19th which is the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or at least the anniversary that it started and that was really the crucial kind of date on the Bundes calendar. My dad used to call it his Yom Kippur um, you know he we weren't religious we didn't celebrate many religious holidays, but April 19th had this kind of holy implication around it. So he used, he ran it for decades. Um, And, you know, there was a kind of formula that they set up that they followed. There was candle lighting, a survivor would speak and tell their story. There would often be another speaker who would talk, you know, maybe like, um, uh, Helfer at Skiff would talk. Maybe um, there'd be an artistic program where the children from Skiff would read Yiddish poems, read narrations, uh, sing song Yiddish songs. You know, mostly it was in Yiddish, but often like the there was kind of narrations in English that told particular stories. There might have been a particular theme. And it was pretty effective. And when I took over in about 2000, and I took over by myself to, to run it in about 2008. And I kind of was conscious that, you know, these things aren't static. How you remember something isn't static. And, you know, gener- there were generational differences and shouldn't necessarily try and run it in the same way as my dad did and others had before us. So I tried to kind of experiment a little bit with the format. Um, One year I included, uh, I mean, I didn't choreograph it, but I had another helper choreographer dance um, that we included in, and that kind of ruffled a few feathers at the time. Although, you know, as my dad told me, he had done that decades earlier. 
I think what was controversial is the dance was to a hip hop song, um, and that you know that was kind of seen as like a little beyond the pale. Um, and then one year I wanted to incorporate readings from survivors and victims of other genocides alongside uh, the stories of um, the Warsaw Ghetto and the Jews of Europe. And, you know, I think people were a little uncomfortable with it and I was a little kind of brash and um, a bit cocky about it as well and (laughs) maybe had a bit of an artistic temperament about having my program um, tampered with. Um, but I really saw it as important that we try and speak to people in a language that conveyed the urgency of why we ought to learn about the Holocaust and April 19th and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising beyond just kind of looking inward, but sort of doing that outward. Because, you know, Skiff is a socialist movement. And to me, it was important that um, we had this kind of activist uh, lesson that we drew out of studying the Holocaust and our grandparents' history. So, in the end, um, it was decided that we wouldn't go with that script that I'd put together. Um, but what really kind of set set things off a little bit more was um, that particularly that was 2010. The uh, April 19th fell on the same day as uh, Yom Hatzma'ut. And that night across the other side of Melbourne, um, there was the big Yom Hatzma'ut cel- community Yom Hatzma'ut celebration. And, you know, needless to say, the Bund did not participate in a Yom Hatzma'ut celebration. It was a non-Zionist, you know, Previously, I would have described it as anti-Zionist, but I know these terms are loaded, so I'm kind of a hedge between the two. So I thought I I was giving a speech that night and I thought I can't ignore this fact. It also happened to be the first April 19th after Marek Edelman, who was um, one of the commanders of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and a Bundist uh, after he died. So I gave a speech where I talked about uh, the Jews, you know, our responsibility to um, recognize genocide to struggle against it to act speak out against it but also our responsibility as jews to wield power responsibly when we had power that it was a very different world to the world of the 1940s and so when there was a jewish state um it was important that we speak out and ensure that they were conducting themselves um according to you know values that were consistent with a people that had experienced genocide um, and I talked about the occupation and I described the occupation as illegal. Um, and it was really kind of a tense moment. Um, you know, you could, I write about this in the book, you could really feel the uh, discomfort of the audience. They were shuffling in their seats. There was <laughs> some heckling, uh, which is so far the only time I've been heckled other than by students. So... <laughs> Um, it was, you know, it was a kind of strange episode that um, made me think a little differently about, you know, people's attachment to these stories and these rituals as well. You know, these were kind of, I realized these rituals that people held very dear and, and they saw it in a kind of religious light. They were 
rituals that weren't to be tampered with. There was a kind of secular, you know, civic religion. I know religious studies scholars have moved away from that term of civic religion a bit, but I see it in that way. It's this kind of um, using, and this is a Bunda ceremony, you know, these are not necessarily, uh, it's not a religious community per se, but the rituals had the same kind of functions. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting aftermath. We had a sort of community discussion about it and, um, yeah, sort of it was kind of interesting writing about it years later, particularly in reflecting back on it and sort of taking a step back from my initial indignation uh, in 2010. So, yeah, that, that's I talk about that at length in one of the chapters in the book. Yeah, that's a really um... – I really like that um, description of that scene and, and, yeah, and your reflections on it. Um, so one of the um, next sections and sort of the, the section that takes up sort of the most of the first half of your book is um, about your grandfather and his life um, before he migrated to Australia. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit about uh, finding your um, grandfather's letters and um, sort of how you um, chose to sort of weave those letters through with uh, sort of like a broader historical narrative and, um, yeah, but in, and in the process just tell us a bit about, about his life. So I, I vaguely knew these letters existed. I'd known for a few years that in our cousin's garage in Los Angeles. There was a box or some container of letters that my grandfather, I'll call him my Zeta in Yiddish, my Zeta had written to his brother Mendel. So my Zeta was born in 1901 in Warsaw. Uh, he, you know, to a kind of very traditional family, it's a kind of familiar story at that time, a traditional family. His father was a shoemaker who had a a workshop in a city square. Um, his father was killed during World War One by German soldiers occupying Warsaw. There's a whole story behind that, but he was just a teenager. And then within a couple of years, his mother had uh, also died. Uh, she had been forced to remarry and she fell pregnant by her new husband and tried to self-abort the pregnancy um, and in the process died. Um, you know, it's a kind of this kind of evergreen story and frighteningly prescient at the current moment. I live in South Carolina, so it's um, something I think a lot about at the moment, that story. So my grandfather and his siblings were orphaned um, when they were he was a t he and his older sister were just teenagers, and he had two younger siblings, and they were sent off with a grandfather. He event he decided to leave Warsaw, and he settled in a city about a hundred kilometers away called Wrocławek, a city of about um, less than a hundred thousand people, um, and about ten to fifteen thousand Jews. Uh, he there so at some point along the way he joined the Bund. We don't exactly know how or why, or ex we can't pinpoint when, and that knowledge is gone. Uh, but he married another Bundist activist, Gitl Vishnevska. They had two sons, Shmulek and Chaim. 
Uh, and, you know, they were party activists. He was a bookkeeper. Uh, his wife, Gittel, was one of the founders of the youth movement Sukunft in their, in their town, Wotswavek. When the war broke out in 1939 um, and the Nazis invaded and occupied Wotswavek, they stayed uh, initially and they decided it was they, – they thought it was too dangerous to cross to the Soviet Union with two young boys. So they decided to stay. Once it became clear that the Nazis were targeting socialists and political activists, um, they discussed what to do next, and they decided that he wanted the whole family to flee to the Soviet Union, but his together they decided it was too dangerous to take the, the their children. So he fled to the Soviet Union. Um, his wife and son stayed, and... He actually tried to come back in the middle of 1940 to Poland, but he was arrested at the border and sent to Siberia by Soviet agents. And um, he didn't know until the war was over um, that his wife and two sons had been um, murdered at the Helno death camp. Uh, so, I mean, that's, you know, it, it was a very turbulent... He was 44 when the war ended, and it was very. He'd led an extremely traumatic and turbulent life to that point. He really just wanted a quiet corner of the earth to have to live out the rest of his life peacefully. Um, so he married my grandmother, basically on the way back from Siberia. Um, they settled in a town for a couple of years called Saratov in the Soviet Union. And then they came back to Poland in 1946 and thought maybe they could resettle there, but knew pretty quickly that that was not going to be possible because of anti-Semitism particularly. And then they fled to Paris where they had a cousin. And in 1950, they managed to get visas to come to Australia where they had a friend who sponsored their migration. Great. So... Yeah, that's a it's it's a really interesting uh, in your book how you sort of tell that story, um, and I wonder, yeah, if you want to um, reflect a bit more about how you thought about yeah weaving in um, your particular family history with um, a broader history and and that being and yeah sort of like a particular way of of, of getting across that history. Um, and also, yeah, as listeners uh, may pick, be, have picked up, the structure of the book itself, that's not, you know, it doesn't proceed in a sort of neat chronological um, fashion. It um, is really sort of, you know, there's different lives are sort of woven together in quite a complex uh, way. And there's, um, so there's sort of, it's ordered uh, thematically in some ways, and then there's um, yeah, there's sort of a a, um, a variety of different sort of storytelling techniques that you employ. So maybe yeah, we're sort of coming towards the end of the the our time. But if you could tell us a bit a bit about that, that would be great. So I mean, it's something I agonised a little bit about, well, quite a lot about how to tell this story and weave all these different stories together 
So the first chapter I wrote ended up being the last one, which was about when my dad died in at the end of 2015. And I knew pretty much straight away with that chapter, and I thought this was how the whole book would proceed, was basically what I wanted to convey was the kind of fog that I felt I was in particularly in those first couple of weeks. My father died of a heart attack very suddenly. We didn't expect it. Um, He was as healthy as he'd been. And so it came as a huge shock to us. And he was in Los Angeles. I was in New York. My brother was still in Melbourne. So we're all kind of apart. So part of the whole experience of that um, morning period um, and sitting shiver, it was, you know, this really sort of it was like a global affair because we had to fly back to Melbourne we had to fly my father's body back and it was really just this kind of haze that I felt like I was in so I wanted that first chapter as I was writing it to convey that so it's like a little bit I wouldn't say stream of conscious but um, certainly um, the tone I think it's actually the last it ended up being the last chapter but the tone is one of, um, you know, picking up the threads that sort of came to me as I was riding and, and running with them um, and then piecing it together as I went. Um, and then once I started expanding to tell my dad and my grandfather's stories particularly and weave my own story there, I was really conscious that I didn't want to just put my experiences alongside theirs because they were so different, you know, I really can't, like, I, there's a chapter I write on uh, immigration and the experience of my grandparents being immigrants to Australia. And, you know, me and my family are immigrants to the United States, but those experiences are so fundamentally different that it was kind of a delicate thing to do to put our stories alongside each other because my version of that story is not a traumatic one it's like a very privileged version of it as a college professor who you know basically has a gateway to a um to residency in the united states it you know i wasn't kind of trapped in communist eastern europe um or at least that wasn't a risk so it was a kind of delicate balance is how do i sort of put these stories alongside each other. What I really want to show, though, was how those experienced shaped my thinking about my own experience. And also, I had this sense, and this goes to your first question, I had this sense that if I just told a story about my father and my grandfather and me, that would be interesting to my family. And I think it's an interesting story inherently. But also, I wanted to do something bigger with the story. I wanted to sort of show how this story is a really like part of the Jewish 20th century, how it has these much bigger implications for the ways in which Jews experienced uh, World Wars I and II, um, immigration, resettlement, um, you know, how the traumas of one generation don't simply vanish, but actually get filtered down in different ways. Um, so part of the way I'm, I was structuring it um, was to sort of in um, kind of incorporate uh, a more scholarly voice. So I really have three different voices through the book. There's my voice as a kind of participant, uh, that first person voice. There's my voice 
telling the story of my dad and my grandfather. And then there's my voice, the historian, who's kind of interpreting it and placing these stories in their broader context to help the reader make sense of those stories and why they matter. And then I guess a fourth voice I would add is my grandfather's voice, because uh, as you pointed out earlier, I have this cachet of about 40 letters that he sent to his brother Mendel in Los Angeles. They are each, mostly they're about 10 to 15 pages in Yiddish handwritten in tiny script and he used every millimeter of the page available um, and he did not waste a single page. So, you know, his voice is quite prominent in many parts of the book, uh, particularly in one chapter where I basically reproduce one of the letters in translation. So, you know, I guess one of the things about the book is that I'm really trying to weave these different different stories and different themes um, and kind of, you know, it wouldn't have worked as a linear um, story. And because it's not, you know, I say like memories aren't linear. That's not how we experience the world as things proceed forward directly. So, you know, I wanted the book to convey that sense that um, the way we think about the past isn't just in a straight line, but actually kind of is this potpourri of different experiences and memories and ideas about what we want the world to be and what we want the past to have been. That is, um, yeah, a really um, good summing up of, yeah, basically the methodology of of the book and um, some of the ideas behind it. So um, it's really a very special book. Uh, so I definitely recommend that listeners um, go and pick it up. Um, thanks very much for talking uh, with us about it today, David. Um, we'll just ask you the traditional last uh, question for New Books and Jewish Studies before we let you go. Um, tell us a bit about what you're working on next. Okay. Uh, well, I have an edited volume coming out in February that I've put together with my colleagues, Gabriel Finder and Avinor and Pat, um, called, uh, and this is like quite a departure from this book, uh, but it, the book is also with Wayne State University Press, and it's called Laughter After Humor and the Holocaust. Uh, and it's a collection of essays that looks at um, all the different ways that the Holocaust has been kind of um, incorporated into humorous media like stand-up comedy and sitcoms and films and not, uh, literature. Um, and it's really a, you know, if I do say so myself, <laughs> a pioneering volume. It's, you know, we have just some incredible authors that have written really amazing work. So that's coming out. I'm also working on a book about um, survivors in the United States and how they sort of conceptualize the notion collectively of survivor, you know, what makes them survivors, uh, in quotation marks, and what means others aren't survivors. And then from there, I kind of extrapolate, you know, how does that shape our understanding of what the Holocaust is and what it isn't? Brilliant. Those sound like, um, yeah, both fantastic projects, and uh, we definitely hope to have you on the program again to to talk about them. Um, But that's the end of uh, this episode. So um, thanks very much for listening to New Books in Jewish Studies. With us we had David Slukey and he talked to us about his new book, uh, Sing This at My Funeral, a memoir of fathers and sons, published in 2019 by Wayne State University Press. Thanks for joining us.